0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it, enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Julie Billingsley, Vice President of Human Resources and Principal at ZS Associates. Julie has a unique path to human resources. She started out as a college professor, which ultimately led her to a Small business that was looking for their first human resources professional, but wanted somebody without a traditional HR background. As she says, they wanted somebody who could come in and solve problems and help get things done. That launched her career at ZS. And over 26 years later, she has helped the organization grow into a large, over 10,000 person global enterprise with over double digit growth every year throughout that period. In this conversation, we get into ZS's unique culture how they have built coaching into every facet and every level of the organization. We talk about cultural differences that they've experienced as they've built out a global business. And we talk about how they have built some unique staffing models that have helped keep them appropriately staffed as they have experienced some of this rapid growth. It's a really interesting conversation for anyone leading a business. Uh, Julie has given a lot of thought to what they do and Uh, is very specific around the culture that they've built. And I think if you like the people side of business, I think you're going to like this conversation. Here is Julie Billingsley. And we are live. I'm here with Julie Billingsley. Julie, welcome to the show. Very excited to explore ZS Associates and how you've crafted the uh, people side of the business.
1: Cool. All right. I'm ready.
0: All right. Well, to start off, would you mind just pitching ZS Associates?
1: Sure. Um, let's see. You know, I never have to do this because I'm not on sort of the client side of our business. But uh, ZS is a professional services firm. We're a global firm. We focus on deep industry expertise. The company was founded by two professors at Kellogg that were marketing professors, and all of the early clients were in the pharma industry. So we have a very strong focus still in healthcare and pharma. And so you can feel that expertise as one of the key things we bring. Lots of focus on analytics, technology, kind of like, you know, just ways to create solutions for clients, kind of in real world business. And we work with companies around the world. As I said, lots of healthcare, high tech, financial services. Because of the original focus in marketing and sales, I would say, Lots of our work is still there, and it's kind of with companies that have complicated marketing and sales. You know, not direct sales. And so, if you think about it, that means like in in healthcare, it could be everything from you know discovery through how to commercialize a product, through you know what's the strategy, how do you analyze uh, the technology to enable it, all the pieces of it.
0: So basically, anything along the scope of taking an idea and bringing it to market in a profitable way you're you're consulting on those processes
1: yeah yeah and sort of more um, on sort of the complicated stuff if you think about it from if you just take pharmaceutical as an industry example it could be that there could be a project where what you're doing is you're analyzing the value of the drugs that are in the pipeline in the R&D portfolio compared to the current market or future market to try and give a company advice about where to invest or if, as they have drugs that they're bringing along through trials, it could be to do an analysis about where, what are the diagnostic areas based on the indications of that drug that will be the best ones or the biggest ones, which markets should they focus on first, if they then get a drug all the way ready to go to market, you know, you've got to figure it out for every country differently because every country has a different pricing model, a different distribution model. Then you've got to track it when it launches. You've got to figure out who they call on, if there's a sales force or who you market to if there's not a sales force. And in pharma, you know, the lifespan of the drug is fairly short because from when they get a patent, it takes them a long time to get it to market. And so they've got to make all their money in a short window of time before that drug goes generic.
0: Interesting. So I would imagine you have some smart people working with you.
1: Yeah, that's kind of our thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so what is the what is the US footprint look like and what does your global footprint look like? Just like where the people are Gosh, how
1: okay. situated, yep. what they're doing. Yeah. So we work in 13 countries around the world. Primarily I would call it like um, in the Americas, we're in North America, Canada, we're in Brazil, Argentina. In Europe, we have six uh, locations in London, Paris, Frankfurt, Milan, uh, Zurich, Barcelona. In Asia, we're in um, Singapore, in Japan, in Shanghai. Um, We have a big offshore center in India with three offices there in uh, New Delhi, Pune, and Bangalore. And... Really, our India and Argentina offices both operate like expertise centers. They aren't delivering work in those markets. They're working for everyone else. And so our India focuses a lot on Americas and European clients. Argentina is kind of a near shoring, if that makes sense. They overlap the U.S. time zone really well and work with a lot of the clients in the U.S. And so we just crossed between employees and contractors, just crossed 10,000. People are kind of scattered all over the place. In the US, we're up and down the eastern seaboard. We're in the Midwest and we're on the West Coast.
0: So you're doing some very complex, complicated work with a lot of different clients all over the globe. Are your people location-based or are they moving around all the time?
1: I think the answer is both. Our offices are located proximate to big clients. Although we originally started in Evanston, Illinois, because it's where Northwestern was, where our two founders were professors. As we've opened additional offices, they've been primarily anchored on there's a big client there. So our strategy with our offices has been to open so that the employees that are based there could work for local clients and not be on the road. And so, of course, people do travel for professional services, you know, that go to where the client is, but we try to anchor proximate so that people can can live at home and go to the client when they need to or go to the office when they need to and you still see some people who travel but you know we're not like a out on sunday night back on thursday night crowd people yeah. are in the people are in the office part of the time and they're at the client part of the time but there's a pretty strong office-based culture the only places where people aren't really anchored on client locations are really like argentina and india where people are there they're working for clients who sit somewhere else but the other part of it is, is our people do move around all the time. Like, if you look at the workforce today, it's a pretty mobile one. We hire a lot of younger folks right out of university programs or, you know, relatively young in their careers. And just by personal preference or life circumstances, they are mobile. So we have people who are transferring between our locations a lot more often for personal preference than because the the company's asking them to. But, you know, I think that's just part of the story of business today.
0: So they're moving because they come to you and say, we've got an interest in being in a different location, not necessarily because you're shipping them to 15 projects a year all over the country.
1: No, no. If we had them lined up to a client or somewhere else where they were flying there all the time, they would probably transfer to the office that was by that client if they really wanted to stay connected to that client as opposed to being on the plane all the time. And so like I used to think that Europe was the location where if you were in one of our European offices where you'd end up with more daily travel because it's so easy to travel between the cities within Europe as a day for a day meeting. But more and more as people are able to do meetings through, you know, whatever sort of meeting platform, you don't see people jumping on a, a plane. Of course, now, not at all in the pandemic, but you don't yeah. see people jumping on a plane for a two-hour meeting anymore.
0: And you were saying that even before the pandemic hit.
1: Yeah, right. I think we try to, we've always tried to say that our our, our travel needs to be sort of purposeful and intentional because it's a significant cost to your client. And it's a significant cost in terms of sort of employee wear and tear. So you don't want to make people be there if they don't have to be there.
0: Well, that's different than what you think of a lot of other management consulting firms or corporate consulting firms. Like you said, you know, it's you leave Sunday night or on the, you know, first thing Monday morning and you come back Thursday night.
1: Yep. So was that a
0: conscious choice then?
1: Totally. It totally was a conscious choice. In our early days, we really thought that we wanted our office sizes to be small enough that everybody knew everybody else and you really got an informal vibe and a high level of sort of collaboration and easy support from the folks that you were sitting near. And part of the way to do that was to make that office be where your client was so that people could be in the office or go to a client meeting and come back to the office without it having to be a trip.
0: Yeah. So with that work structure, that keeps you very spread out then. Like you said, you've got a lot of these small offices, so they all know each other, but they're somewhat disconnected maybe from each other. What are the biggest challenges that you find to the model that you've built out when it comes to leading people?
1: Um so I, I think that now, of course, as the company gets bigger, the offices get bigger, the clients get bigger. You know, so one account can be so many millions of dollars that now they, the the the, cl- the teams that support it sit in different countries too. And almost any one of our big accounts, there's a team that's proximate to the client and also a big team offshore, either in India or Argentina. And so those teams have to span time zones. Um, Or there are people scattered in multiple countries supporting this client because of their market strategy or because of where they are delivering their products. They've got you know they've got activity in lots of countries. and so you're you end up spanning time zones to support that client. And so I do think that the global workforce is one of the trickiest parts of it because you end up with with folks who have to figure out how to manage their workday if they're getting on calls early or late. The client time zone doesn't overlap their time zone completely, you know, all those types of things. And that, that does become a stress on your on everybody it comes you know you can't do it all the time you get burned out on it right yeah. and you don't want to live somewhere where you're you know living some shifted time zone where you are where you don't start till late in your day and you have to work every night or something like that yeah. so it's kind of a constant thing for us to find the balance there
0: what is your role in that as a human resources leader
1: Oh gosh! I mean, I think that in human resources, your job is a key job of trying to enable everybody else, and so you've got to be constantly sort of surveying the landscape of the workforce to try and figure out what's working and what's not. What are the stressors? Um, you know, what are what are the early signs of something that's emerging or growing, so that you can kind of be a little bit ahead of it. And because it's pretty easy for something to pick up momentum within um, a workforce, that then all of a sudden it's a much harder problem to solve. Yeah, you know we can feel it in the pandemic with everybody working from home. There's just not a way to do all the things we used to do when we had some face-to-face presence with each other, and it's really hard to course correct on that.
0: Yeah, how how do you do that surveying? What does that look like for you?
1: Um, I think it's a mixture of all kinds of stuff, of course, like um uh, on the on the one end of it, there is a survey, right? There's um an engagement survey. there's a we call it our health check, all kinds of sort of uh, you know, side surveys that go with that. You know, we survey our new hires. We survey them three months after they join. We talk to folks uh, who've just been promoted. we like all all the different layers that you can in the company. but on the other side of it, you know, the HR business partners ta- are supporting key spaces, uh, whether they're client spaces, practice spaces, offices. So they're connecting to key stakeholders on the business side, trying to really stay close to the business. We have a big team of folks that are coaches. They're professional coaches for our junior level folks. So they're doing coaching sessions with people all the time. And that's a really good source of intelligence around if something's picking up some steam amongst, amongst folks that you've really got to understand understand. understand and pay attention to.
0: Interesting. So uh, how does that coaching work? If we could unpack that a little bit.
1: Sure. So I think um, the dilemma of professional services is that you don't organize by departments, right? People don't belong to a department. Um, they, They basically sit within a pool where they're staffed. They could be aligned to a key account or they might come in with a type of expertise that makes them part of a practice area. But they are working day-to-day with a primary project team. And so that that team is like, you know, how they experience the company, but you also want to have sort of the infrastructure of how you support folks across these different staffings, because they might be, their staffing could change every three to six months or however long, and then, you know, it's a point of discontinuity when everything changes. You change project managers, you change teammates, and so on. So we align everyone at ZS with what we call a professional development coach or a PD coach, and that person... Basically operates as a coach, not as a feedback giver. They're not typically the person that you report to in terms of project alignment, but they engage with you to kind of understand what your aspirations are, your interests, your expertise, coach you, and you know, it's it's probably a little bit of professional coaching, a little bit of life coaching, a little bit of therapy, a little bit of all of it, right?
0: So, are these people that that you first of all are they on your payroll or are they, they are? outside? No, we hire them. They're yours. Uh, yep. And are you hiring them just to be coaches or are they also we doing are. frontline work?
1: Nope. We have a whole team of people. We call this program Expedition, which is kind of a funny sort of concept, but it started originally with new university graduates, where as people were coming to ZS, what we were figuring out is this was their first job. And not only do they have to figure out what it means to... um do this work like work for a project manager have deliverables figure out hard stuff but they have to figure out how to be like you know how to be an employee how to be professional wake up take a shower show up with in clothes that you know have been washed and 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 aren't too (laughs) wrinkly um when is it okay to ask questions and when do you have to figure it out? What are the sort of key aspects of the profile of your role that are going to show, you know, through as indicators of success or, you know, that kind of things. And so we created this program called Expedition where people were paired up with a coach as, as new joiners come in kind of in batches, they're in cohorts. And our Expedition coaches will hold some common sessions with all of them. Like, you know, teaching them about the fundamentals of a competency model. Or, you know, as we get ready for, say, a review cycle, they'll talk about the performance system and how we use it and what we do with it, things like that. But... Um, a big part of it is these recurring meetings that are just coaching conversations. And so the program kind of gives them a cohort of people that are kind of like them, but that also gives them this person that sits outside of their line of work who can kind of give them advice, ask them questions, pay attention if this person's in trouble in some way. You know, if they're overly stressed, their workload's too high, they're, you know, really struggling with whatever personal issues, it gives them a person to go to so that we can kind of. To try and keep everybody in, in good balance. And so that team, you know, scales with the business as you hire more people, you need more coaches. And so there's a big team of expedition coaches now. And we, they, they coach folks who have who been at ZS for anywhere from like, say, the first level of associate or analyst, and then the next level above that of associate consultant, which is, so they might be like for your first four to five years, you'd have a dedicated coach. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I I, I I do a podcast about people. I wish I was one of those. I want one, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, so what was the conversation like at the beginning of that? Because I I have heard the argument made before that like you did, like these are, you get people fresh out of college and you have to teach them how to be. You know, you have to teach them the expectations that you have. But there's also the other side where it's like, you know, hey, you're a professional. We're paying you to show up here. You got to figure this out. Like, you, you got to yeah. be an adult. Come on.
1: But they were getting a coach anyway, because we have PD coaches for everybody, but it was somebody in the business who was probably, say, um, you know, a, another layer or two up, a consultant or a manager. And what we were discovering is that they're, the the conversations that you were having with new new to ZS or new to job were similar and the same and continued to, on a repeat, right? Like, they've got to understand professionalism. They've got to understand quality. They've got to um, understand... Somebody's got to keep explaining that, yeah, you got to read your competency model and, yeah, your performance review does count for something. That's how they figure out your raise. And, yeah, you got to show up and you got to record your time. Whatever it is, Yeah. And so the folks on the business side would forget, oh, I haven't told that person that because they'd already told it to five other people. And so we were discovering that sort of the quality of coaching for our junior people was a little bit in uh, variable, so that people would come into it with high enthusiasm and they would kind of just get tired of it because it, it was there was a lot of repeat at, compared to coaching someone who was mid-career or more senior where the coaching conversations are probably a bit more complex and unique. And so... At the same time, when you had someone who was getting a good coach, the impact of that good coach was enormous in terms of um, enthusiasm, engagement, just sort of shaping the person in terms of responsiveness, giving them important advice that made them much more effective within their team. And so we kind of said, well, we can do this. And if we figured out the total hours of all of the people who were kind of doing a somewhat moderate job you know, along a really wide distribution from great coach to terrible coach, took up all those hours, it would more than pay for the the, the payroll that we would need for the expedition coaches, because all those people are really client facing. And a lot of them, you know, there's like a business opportunity that cost to having them be coaching instead of meeting sure. with a client or doing business development.
0: Yeah. So you went really from, from a mentoring model to bringing in specific coaches and and yep. building it out for the needs of the people. What were you looking for as far as an ROI on that? You mentioned that you were seeing a lot of these indicators improve. Were you specifically looking for those things or was there anything that you were tracking when it comes to
1: So I think we wanted well, we wanted to see we wanted to see retention because the junior folks, you know, you invest a lot when they're brand new. And I would say, you know, there's some window of time as they're new where they're, the investment is high in terms of onboarding and learning and getting them up to speed and really ready to be staffed. And then the longer you retain them at that level and the next level, the better, because that, that's, that's a time in, in consulting where they're almost 100% staffed and almost 100% billable. So, of course, we were trying to affect turnover. Most people that come to professional services don't come expecting to stay. Like They think it's going to be a great first job. Oh, I'm going to go do consulting for a couple years. I'm going to find out about a lot of companies, find out cool stuff, and then I'll settle in somewhere else or go back to grad school. And so having them understand the opportunity of a career here or be really intrigued by what they're learning and what they're doing and want to stay for another year before they go was a big win for us.
0: So you said they're doing it, they're getting these coaches for the first four or five years. Mm -hmm. What happens after that point?
1: So you continue to have a coach, you transition over to somebody in the business as your professional development coach. So if you're you know, the middle of our, we have a really flat structure, we only have six levels. So in the middle is kind of this consultant level. Uh, Usually that person is getting coached by a manager or maybe by um, an associate principal, which is kind of like a junior partner level. And those folks at, at the middle are kind of in the project lead role. They're not the project manager, but they're, they're oftentimes the day-to-day project manager or project facilitator. And so having someone who's connected to the business then or even in within their same space or close space is really useful because the focus for them oftentimes is around career path at that point or around building their network. And so having someone from the business who's doing that coaching for them really helps. Yeah, that makes sense. And that it kind of just keeps going up. If if it's the manager in the company, they're usually coached by one of the junior partners or one of the partners. Even the folks at the principal level, the partner level have a PD coach that's somebody else within the partner ranks. So everybody's having a coaching conversation.
0: Interesting. Where did that belief in the value of coaching come from?
1: You know, it could just be baked into our culture. It's a people company. When you're doing professional services, your product is your people. And... Coming out with our founders being professors, you know, they were all used to this advisor model. Mm. You know, I joined a really long time ago when the company was really small. Even back then, we had a buddy system. The, the people that we had that were quote unquote the managers of people were called professional development managers. So we always had a concept of somebody different than just your project manager who worried about you. But there wasn't, they, they didn't really have an administrative manager role. Even though we call them a manager back then, the primary role was to be a coach. And so just as you know, we kind of evolved in our probably our focus on people, we started to build out learning curriculum around coaching and managing and things like that. And it was really evident that that role was a coaching role.
0: And I promise we'll move off this, but I do have That's one okay. or two more questions. And I, I just think it is very unique to have coaching so embedded within the organization. I think a lot of organizations do training and development, but the way that you're describing it is unique from my experience in talking to your peers and counterparts. It
1: it is. It was, and, and, you know, part of it can't grew out of need as we built our India, workforce offshore, the volume of junior people compared to the pyramid, compared to onshore was was incredibly hard to manage. We had many, many, many junior people and not that many managers because they are all working for somebody else. So you needed a way to coach all those people or to quote-unquote manage all those people. And we looked at co- a cohort model and the effort from somebody on the business to have a cohort of 20 or 40 people that they were constantly talking to was draining. They didn't have any time to do any business. And so we kind of almost backed into it. But then we kind of, as we did our research, we figured out that, you know, this program would pay for itself compared to the time of the business-facing people who were doing it. And the potential for impact was significantly higher.
0: So you touched on a good question there. Which is it sounds like you're doing this globally, yep. so what are the challenges to building out coaching in other countries?
1: well, gosh, um it, it it's probably the same challenge you have about building anything in a lot of countries. There are so many cultural differences within the countries, you know, uh, around how how people understand how how to be at work and what is appropriate and not appropriate, and even you know how they spend their time and what they care about is slightly different. but We have a pretty global work model. We hire people to the same profiles everywhere. In all of our core positions, we use the same recruitment profile so that we are able to enable both cross office stabbing, And also mobility. So if somebody in one country wants to move to the same role in another country, they've been hired on the same profile with the same sort of performance framework and the same sort of competency framework. And and so it makes that possible. I think for our coaches, part, part of what we've had to build out is sort of the... Um, the team that manages those coaches because they come in not junior people, right? They're not super senior either. They kind of sit in the middle organizationally. They got to be enough ahead of the junior people to have credibility, but they have to be sort of young enough in their career um, to still have a lot of passion and a lot of patience with sort of a young workforce. And they almost operate a little bit like a self-managing work team, right? Because they can identify where their own gaps are and they build their own initiatives around their gaps and their own training and things like that just because they're they're quite autonomous as a unit in their role. And it's such a successful program with junior people that in, in all of the office people rely on our coaches as a resource to, you know, help the rest of the team too. So a lot of the PD coaches that are coaches for more senior people in the business will come to the local coaches for advice.
0: Hmm. And are those coaches then coordinating their work globally? are they talking about the way that they're coaching the programs totally. they're putting in place the okay
1: and the cohorts and the type of content they might bring in a group forum to them, they they manage that almost like a curriculum. So there'll be a lesson plan for the month or a focus so that they're all doing the same thing everywhere um, for cohorts that are about of the same amount of tenure. So and, and there's some things that are like timely before you hit your performance cycle. They all do refreshers about the review system and how it works and stuff like that. And if we're doing a lot of recruiting and there's a big push going on around referrals, Junior people always have referrals, and we pay a referral bonus. We'll use those coaches to advertise that referral program and get it out there. You know that kind of stuff. So there's a bunch of of coordination that they do across, and I would say it probably operates a little bit regionally. You know, like the folks in India, the the cycle and the season is a bit different there than maybe onshore or the U.S. or Americas. But there's a high level of coordination within the within the team.
0: It sounds I mean one of the questions I was going to ask anyway was around the global workforce and how you maintain a consistent culture around the globe but it sounds like that has to play a huge
1: It does. piece of it. That. Totally does, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, we're really into our culture. If you talk to people in professional services, they all kind of say that though. But I, I would say like, I, from very early days in the company, we've really had a very strong belief that you've got to run the company based on values. You've got to hire people that fit your values. You've got to manage by core values. And um, so that almost has to permeate your workplace so that people really understand. And that does drive that consistency. The fact that so Many people work on account teams that sort of cross countries. Means that they all intersect with people that aren't just in their location or in their role type. You know, they 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 know people who work for their same client that are in many in multiple countries or people who are part of their practice area that sit in other places and work for other clients. And so they build these internal networks that kind of span, and that that's a big you know culture carrying thing too.
0: Yeah. So You said before when you're talking about training how you're looking for consistent things across the globe as far as the people you're bringing in, but there's also the cultural nuances of each place. How do you give credence to the cultural differences while keeping the performance standard the same?
1: Mm-hmm. So, I think you have to treat them completely differently. Okay. So, at the root of our people system is really an anchor of a competency model that is anchored on the core capabilities around consulting or, say, technology or something like that. And we have that fleshed out across core competencies for all of the big sort of capability sets within our company and we use that competency model as more than a document. You take the core competencies and that's what you evaluate on new hires. How are they doing measuring against the core competency of, a, of an expected entry-level person at that, in that job? when we do the performance reviews the questions around the perfor- in our performance system are anchored on those same core competencies and so when you look to figure out if someone's ready to evaluate you're saying are they measuring up to the entry level standards of the next level on those core competencies when you look at the learning system it's building out a roadmap for everybody based on those. If this is what you're supposed to know as an associate in in six months, and twelve months, and eighteen months, and twenty four months, it kind of builds your career path for you as you start to build your skills across all of those core competency sets. And there, there there's some that are quite parallel around you know approach to work that'll be persistent across levels, whether it's professionalism or teamwork, people management, all those types of things are going to be the same with all the jobs. But the types of expertise will be different. All of them will have some as- aspect of quality, but the way you would describe quality would be very different for someone in a technical role versus say an operations delivery role versus a, uh, you know, an analytic consulting type role. You know, the the things that you would do to have good quality would be different.
0: So it sounds like you're really focused on the performance. And then let the culture well, flourish Well, and then what you do locally, is like, is it... as
1: part of your, yeah, you have to, because that's how they're going to experience it, right? It wouldn't wouldn't be at all authentic to expect that people in the UK were not going to act like British folks, right? They're all going to have to have a cup of tea and not a cup of coffee. Um, and they're going to have to have their elevensies um, before lunch. And they're going to eat lunch not at noon, but at one. It just is the way the world works when you live in London, you know, you're going to even eat your lunch later if you live in Spain. But we, we do, as part of our learning curriculum, run stuff around intercultural communication. We have programs that we run for all of our big account spaces and practice spaces around managing across a, a global team uh, around sort of time zones and time empathy and um you know tips for how to stay connected without burning everyone out cuz you can't run on one time zone you got to like keep kind of some t- everybody's got to give sometimes on that kind of a model even things like you know the training you do on unconscious bias which is super important for diversity and inclusion it, it highlights tons and tons of cultural differences that people just sort of have and assume in the workplace and then hold against you when you know you don't when you don't hold to their standard and they don't even realize that it's because you operate in a different cultural norm.
0: Do you have an example of what that might be, what that might look like?
1: Oh my gosh. The easiest one is time. In a U.S. company, people come to a meeting on time, right? If, if, if the meeting's going to start at 3.30, you log into the Zoom at 3.30 or 3.29 or 3.31 and you go, sorry, I'm a minute late, right? In, in Germany, people are dead on time too. It would be so rude to be late. But if you look at the Latin America countries or Italy or Spain or, or China, it would be totally normal to be 10 to 15 minutes late. So if you put together a team of folks from those different countries and they're not aware of the time difference that's just baked into the culture, the folks in Germany are on the phone getting madder and madder because the people from Italy aren't on the phone and they see it as disrespectful. And so you have to go, no, in Italy, people are just late. They don't understand. And so we we go through a lot when we're onboarding people around time to have them understand that in a global company, we actually do just kind of run by the clock. So no matter what the standard is in your country, when when we say a meeting is going to start at at three thirty, it me, it really means like show up then because they're going to start without you. It doesn't mean, you know, go at three thirty three and get your cappuccino and then come. Um, and so it's kind of easy to make fun of the different countries, but there are also countries where people would always log in early because it would be disrespectful to be late. And so we also need them to understand that we we're not going to appreciate that they get there early. We're not going to make them sit in the room, you know, as a as a show that we have higher status or anything else. We're all just going to show up on time. Like we all we're going to and so some of those types of things that we have to do. We're a really flat organization, too, with only six levels. And so our workplace is pretty informal. We run off of first names. You don't have to, like, call people Mr. or Doctor or anything like that. And so we sort of have to bake that in. And some of the cultures, that's actually pretty hard for them to not show overt signs of status based on level. And so as you can get them to sort of relax into the culture it does actually make the ZS culture carry as sort of a stronger attribute than maybe the local within the office setting itself. And that helps a lot, kind of puts them all on a common ground.
0: Yeah. It's so funny just to talk about time, like something as simple as time yeah. and how you have to actually purposefully set the expectation around time so that everybody around the globe handles it. The same way, and it's it sort of reinforces what has been a developing belief of mine, which is that you have to teach people how to interact with people. Oh, you totally do! And like our, our society has just evolved so far beyond whatever our innate biology is that you have to teach people how to be high functioning people in the society. Otherwise, it's just inevitable that there are going to be gaps. Well,
1: and they only operate within what they understand and know. And so they revert back to kind of their learned behavior. Another really great example is, is that we have to, we do quite a bit of training on facilitating how to facilitate a meeting because the way that people um, manage their talk time in a meeting is very different by country. Some countries, I'll pick on the U.S. for an example, if you were in a meeting with four or five people and you had something to say, you kind of bid for the floor by starting to talk when the other person starts to slow down or when their voice stops to drop off. And so there's these little overlaps when people change to hold the floor. In the U.K., people wait for a pause before they jump in. So if you put people from the U.S. and the U.K. in a room together, the U.K. people never get to talk because the U.S. people never give them a break. And that holds in other countries in, in different ways, too. And so, again, you get this thing of, if you do it, breaking a rule in another country, it's viewed as disrespectful or not, you know, appreciating somebody's expertise. So the facilitator has to be ready to cue people, to interrupt, to ask questions, to draw out the people that are waiting for the pause. You know, otherwise you don't get even participation when you put people from a bunch of different countries in a room together to be at, have a meeting.
0: Yeah. So with time, you set the standard. But with something like just that type of cultural norm around interaction, you have to coach the
1: facilitator. Oh, totally. Because people don't know. People do not realize. Within language itself, where we use English as the language of our business and everyone needs to speak English, the norm of how you speak English itself is quite different, right? So I'll I'll pick on like, uh, Germans state many things very factually. Right, it's just like a common thing they do. That they they state their fact. It's there. There's no there's no like modifiers in there. It's just this is the way it is. Other countries sometimes see that as argumentative by their communication style, and so it, it isn't. It's just the way they talk. It's it's a little bit like how people feel like Americans are loud. It's because of the way they manage the floor that they start talking before you finish talking in order to get the floor. Um, and so if you really have facilitators be aware of those things and they're able to help manage the conversation, especially a business one, if you've got clients in there too from different countries, the conversation can escalate and get uncomfortable because people see challenges where there aren't challenges.
0: Yeah. I love it. Well, I have one more question if we can go back to coaching, and I promise sure. we'll, we'll okay. move on. You had said that when you graduate past that four or five year period, you get a coach who you know, is a player coach. they're they're in the business. Is everyone expected at a certain seniority level to be able to coach somebody below them, or are you picking the coaches based on their ability to be good quality coaches?
1: Um, so at the, At the point where people are first able to be a coach, we pick people that we think are good at it because there are probably, for example, more more consultants than we need to be coaches for the layer right below. But as you get to be more senior, I would say probably nearly all partners or principals are coaches for junior partners or managers. People can opt out of the coaching program. And if they get sort of persistent, uneven feedback, we'll have a conversation with them about maybe this isn't the thing that they should be spending time on unless they're willing to be more dedicated to it. But we, just like everything else, you would run learning sessions about the coaching model. You give people sort of very standard tools for how to run a coaching session, how to facilitate if somebody's having trouble in a, with feedback about how to run careful conversations when there are mental health issues around, like you give them like hot topics, right? But there are people who are better at it, for sure. And the ones that are better at it, people want them as a coach. And the ones who are inconsistent, they, they don't want them as a coach. And so, we go through an alignment process annually where we ask people how they like their coach. Are they getting what they need out of the relationship? Are they interested in changing coaches? If so, you know, who are your top five choices? And they, there's like a pull down list of folks there. And then we have a giant matching program. It's probably like, you know, like panheld joining a fraternity or a sorority. Yeah. It finds, it finds the best matches for us.
0: Okay. Okay. And that was kind of a selfish question because we're, Looking at how we do our coaching and mentorship for the producers in our uh-huh. Midwest series, and have been playing around with some different ideas. Originally, everybody got a mentor and everybody was expected to be a mentor. And we realized, you know, like you said, there's different quality mentors. And so you would see certain people kind of flounder and you'd see other people who got a lot of great coaching and were successful. And I'm trying to standardize that in some way right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. It is hard because some people just are not that good at it. They're not either they're not self-aware or they're not patient with the person that they're coaching. And and you know, a coaching conversation is not about you. It's about the person that you're coaching and they're doing ninety-nine percent of the talking.
0: Yeah. So I promised we'll get off coachings and we will I want to talk a little bit about some of your growth. Because I know you and I have had conversations in the past uh, around that growth, and it can be hard as you're growing as quickly as you have grown for as long as you've grown, to struggle with budgeting for that growth and and how do you keep the right amount of the right staffing levels and where do you put those levels and that kind of thing. And I know from our conversations, you've done some work around that. And so how have you evolved your practices to manage? growth.
1: Yeah. First of all, there's an assumption of it. Like maybe and I I have to believe that most companies think they're going to grow all the time, right? But in professional services where you're offering the capability of your people to your clients, if you're not continuing to offer something new, then they're not going to keep coming, right? So you have to keep growing. You have to be on a new content new focus areas, things like that. But also, you know, you gotta be a little bit ahead of them. Otherwise the value isn't there. So like in our model, we sort of assume 10 to 15% growth. Every year. And then there certainly are years where it gets much ahead of that. Like this last year, we just had crazy growth, which is kind of strange on top of a pandemic and everything else to be hiring as fast as you can and hiring them all remotely and everything. But it means that you're always assuming that you're not that your hiring plan is replacing for turnover plus expanding. You're always assuming that you're, there's a there's a bunch of new people in your company all the time that's driving the learning machine. Your onboarding is sort of never ending, and with growth, it probably the model of your onboarding has to be increasingly automated in order to handle sort of volume as you go. But for us, one of the biggest things has been to try and manage supply and demand because, of course, we don't have a perfect line of sight to our business, just like any other business, and so. Every one of our client spaces has some estimate of what their forecast of business would be in this year for this account space. And based on that, we can kind of create a baseline of here's how big our business will be in 2021 because we can stack up all of these account spaces and sort of estimate the whole But It could be plus or minus whatever degrees of freedom, depending on how good they are at it, right? And so we have built a people planning process that we call agile people planning, where we literally do... We don't try to make a five-year plan. We don't try to make a three-year plan. Like We're really happy if we have a one-year plan. And it's great. For some of the account spaces that have sold like big books of business that are multi-year, that there's some line of sight into year two, year three, year four, things like that. But for the most part, what I want is a good line of sight that's 12 months out. Because then what we can do is every single month we can understand if anything's changed in our attrition model because you can forecast attrition and keep fine tuning that model and then you can also understand the forecast of the revenue and and how much of that is growth and you can be by that you can figure out what the people demand will be so that you can continually refine your pipeline in and your recruiting and so If you think about a recruiting plan, that the base of your recruiting plan, if you assume your business was going to be constant and flat, the base of your recruiting plan is still your turnover. Like however many people are leaving, you have to replace just to be able to do the same amount of business as you did the year before. And you've got to replace them with approximately the same timing of the same type of person in the same location in order to kind of keep things on an even keel. Now, the good news is, is all of that's very um, something that you really can model. We we were really successful in modeling our attrition by location, by level, by capability, um, so that we're able to kind of build that base of our hiring plan. Then on top of that, you've got to add on your growth model. And so, if you're going to grow ten to fifteen percent, it means you've got to expand your headcount by that much on top of your attrition every year. So your hiring plan is quite big. And so, if you go into the year thinking ten or fifteen, and then the year starts to heat up. And you end the year at 30% growth or something like that, then you can just imagine like all the recruiters that have been, you know, riding their bike. Now they're like riding their bike as fast as they can um, in order to hire people as fast as they can to keep up with the demand.
0: Does that agile framework allow you to expand faster during those hot months or hot periods?
1: I think otherwise, yeah. If you weren't doing it that way, what would happen is you'd have no line of sight to even get started. You've got to have your pipeline going with recruiting, you know, Um, and you've got to be constantly sourcing and the volume of people you're sourcing are feeding into the top of the funnel. Yeah. And so if you know that your growth is starting to pick up, you widen the funnel so that you're sort of staging more people into the, in, into the funnel to try and, you know, get more throughput on it. Yeah. um, You're getting
0: earlier of, line of sight, right?
1: Yeah. But you still can run into like, you can't hire people fast enough if something really big hits and, um, we usually, as a growing company, and I have to tell you, we've grown every year that I've been here. It does mean that we don't have a bench of people sitting around. We, our recruiting has never really gotten ahead ahead of demand, so that if somebody sells something with no warning and they think it's going to start immediately, like uh, there's nobody sitting around on the bench to do that work. Usually, I'm saying, "Where's your grandmother?" and "Do you have a garage?" <laughs> like, like there's 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 not going to be an easy solution on that one.
0: Okay. Does that data come through your ERP system or like how are you aggregating all that? Because there's a lot of data that you're talking about. There's project data, revenue forecasting, there's people and salaries.
1: We've built a, a people planning tool that pulls the revenue forecasting information in. We can understand by the type of work that's being delivered what the typical pyramid of people is to deliver that work. Um, We can understand from the account team where those people would sit because we understand like where the volume of business is by country and things like that. And so if somebody says, I'm going to have an extra million dollars in my account, I can back up and say, oh, gosh, okay, this... This account space is this amount of this is sales compensation. This amount of it is, you know, a business technology system that they run for marketing analytics. Um, This amount of it is go to market work that they're doing on new products. So I can understand who are the people that deliver that. And, you know, these are the three countries that they primarily support. So we can kind of back into how many people do we need in order to help them deliver an extra million dollars of work there. I know it's kind of like fancy modeling
0: when you built it, like what was the what was the team that built that?
1: Uh, what was the team that built that? Am I talking uh,
0: to the team that built that?
1: Yeah, part of the team that built that we We ran some workshops that included like the some of the client service leads, so the big account leads. We brought in some of the practice area leads. so they would talk about, the type of experts that you need for different types of business. We brought in some of the business unit folks that are location or region-based to kind of get that view of it. Finance people who would say, this is the type of stuff we have in our system. And um, then we worked with actually an, a team of folks that we have at ZS that do sort of like custom tools, analytic tools. And we we kind of mocked it all up and tried it all out in excel and then we built it in a in a in a cloud-based platform and so now every month you know the finance business partner goes in and updates the forecast with that client service lead or you know whoever their layer is underneath them around the world and then that derives and helps us understand the number of people that we need when you roll up that whole forecast and we ask those Client service leads, big questions of do you have any giant proposals out? What's the likelihood of that proposal hitting? What's the lead time on that proposal? And we kind of do some modeling on what percent of those big proposals hit by type of business in order to kind of hedge our bets a little Um, because we don't want to overhire, but you also don't want to leave giant holes out there if one of those hits.
0: So, is that another service that you're now offering to the public to be able to build? People modeling?
1: No, nope, we just do well uh, for sure. People do people modeling all the time, right? Yeah. I would tell you that anything that's cool that we do internally for our our company with from the HR team or any one of our enterprise functions, somebody is yes is going to sell it to some client. So, like I think we have really good competency models, and I've watched our our team sell competency models to their clients before, you yeah. know, and sure. so that, the same kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean every especially when it comes to people management, you know, everybody's Mm -hmm. dealing with the same problems, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So what would you say are the biggest lessons that you've learned from leading the people function through your career?
1: You know, I guess I don't think it's really rocket science, um, but it didn't take me very long, but it took me a while to figure out you really have to listen. Like you have to listen hard and you've got to keep listening. You've got to really trust your team. You have to build a team that you can trust and you got to collaborate with them. I don't think there's um, you know, I'm not a super d- directive and delegating type manager. I'm really involved with my team. And so I think you invest and you build and then you trust them and get out of their way a little bit, you know? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Is there anything that you believe about? business or leadership that you think is contrary to what you see most people doing in the market?
1: I don't know. It might sound super hokey, but I'll give you a piece of advice I give a lot of people. You've got to love what you do. You spend more time at work than you do anything else in your life. Your hours of workday are longer than the rest of the hours of your day. And maybe your job isn't more important than the time you're spending with your family or whatever, but it's going to take up the talk time. And so you've got to love what you do. Otherwise, it's going to kind of start to undercut the rest of your life. And so what you do has to kind of feed your soul. And you have to feel like what you do matters. It makes a difference. It helps the world. And so that concept has to be part of how you run the team. You've got to let people do stuff they like to do within your team. And if you see somebody who isn't happy, hopefully you get them to a better job within your team or a better place within your team because that's going to make them be way better at it. It's going to be, make it way better for them and for your business. And so I, I feel like there's a big component of you know, how you run your business is really based on like uh, the people relationships that are at the root of it. You got to put that first.
0: Yeah, I love that. For you, did you know that human resources was something that you were going to love to do? Or did you get into it and learn... To love it and and build a niche for yourself in a way that made you love the work.
1: I don't think I knew. I didn't even know what human resources was. I don't even know if I still know. Um, <laughs> you know, I kind of I, I started out as a college professor in organizational communication, and you know, I used to teach that and statistics and group communication stuff like that. I came into a job in HR because that background sounded really good to a company that didn't really want to. HR person. They just wanted someone to help them figure stuff out. And the company was small enough that the fun part of it was I got to set up everything, right? There was nobody else in HR before I got there. So I got to make it all up. I have no idea if we end up end up in in, in with something that looks like everybody else's HR or if ours is really different. But I, I do think that 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 aspect of it is something that now when i hear about people who are running you know or in hr in a real bureaucratic company or something like that it doesn't even sound like the same job to me like i can't imagine that that being an hr job because i feel like there's a huge component of hr that is about you know enabling the success of the workforce and helping them solve their 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 hard problems right so the, because you know they have a hard job to do too so you're kind of the catalyst for the rest of the company.
0: Yeah, there. I mean, there is so much power to that naivete of mm-hmm. not having the experience and just saying, "I know where we want to go. I know the problems we need to solve, and let's just find the best way to solve them."
1: Right. And you know, for for many years, I didn't have very many people on the HR team, and so we'd be like, "Oh, we have to hire as many people as we can because we're growing like crazy." I get the whole rest of the company involved, and they came up with great stuff. Like they got super invested in it, right? And and so it's a little bit like they're your workforce. They're your HR workforce. And so the same thing, even with learning, we didn't really have a big learning organization. You'd, you'd get the smart people in the company to train the new people and they did a great job. So there's a component of um, being on the same page and and having the same dilemma and having sitting there with the business to work on it kind of makes it be not something that's a carve out that HR is doing to you or for you, but it, that we're doing it together and HR is helping us get there.
0: I love it. So this is the last question. I know we were joking about this question at the beginning, but I I got (laughs) to ask it. I, I ask it every time. What in your mind is the purpose of business?
1: Yeah, I know it's a totally weird question, (laughs) Um, and and you know I don't know if you think about business as commerce or anything else, but I I guess from from my point of view, where I if I try and step back and is that I I tend to think of things from a very systems point of view, and there is an element of businesses that it's a really big piece of a system in our society now, right? that it's a, uh, it's one of the balancing things that kind of you know it it brings in all of the revenue and all that type of stuff. but it, it's a driver of productivity. For many people, business or what you do for your business creates purpose in your life, too. to, to me, it just has be, it's become a giant societal force as a system. And so I mean, it's why these really big companies that have such unique, uh, Um, cultures or products or have such a unique trajectory in their story of success that people get so fascinated by them because of the, you know, the impact they have on our society today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And to your point on individuals' lives. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. See, that was a great answer. You were were worried about that one. I thought that was fantastic. Great. Well, Julie, thank you for coming on the show. I I find what you do to be incredibly fascinating and I love being able to dive into it a little bit more. So thank you for sharing. I think it'll be really helpful for a lot of people.
1: Well, thanks for having me on your show. I hope it's interesting.
0: Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.